Chapter 13 The Sleepless Saint Please permit me to go to the Himalayas. I hope, in unbroken solitude, to achieve continuous divine communion. I actually once addressed these ungrateful words to my master. Seized by one of the unpredictable delusions that occasionally assail the devotee, I felt a growing impatience with hermitage duties and college studies. A feebly extenuating circumstance is that my proposal was made when I had known Sri Yukteswar for only six months. Not yet had I fully surveyed his towering stature. Many hillmen live in the Himalayas, yet possess no God-perception. My guru's answer came slowly and simply. Wisdom is better sought from a man of realization than from an inert mountain. Ignoring Master's plain hint that he, and not a hill, was my teacher, I repeated my plea. Sri Yukteswar vouchsafed no reply. I took his silence for consent, a precarious but convenient interpretation. In my Calcutta home that evening, I busied myself with travel preparations. Tying a few articles inside a blanket, I remembered a similar bundle, surreptitiously dropped from my attic window a few years earlier. I wondered if this were to be another ill-starred flight towards the Himalayas. The first time, my spiritual elation had been high. Tonight, my conscience smote me at the thought of leaving my guru. The following morning, I sought out Bihari Pundit, my Sanskrit professor at Scottish Church College. Sir, you have told me of your friendship with a great disciple of Lahiri Mahashai. Please give me his address. You mean Ram Gopal Muzumda. I call him the sleepless saint. He's always awake in an ecstatic consciousness. His home is in Ranbajpur, near Tarakeshwar. I thanked the pundit and entrained immediately for Tarakeshwar. I hoped to silence my misgivings by getting permission from the sleepless saint to engage myself in lonely meditation in the Himalayas. Bihari Pundit had told me that Ram Gopal had received illumination after many years of Kriya Yoga practice in isolated caves in Bengal. In Tarakeshwar, I made my way to a famous shrine. Hindus regarded with veneration, such as Catholics feel for the Lord's sanctuary in France. Innumerable healing miracles have occurred in Tarakeshwar, including one for a member of my family. I sat in the temple there for a week, my eldest aunt once told me, observing a complete fast. I prayed for the recovery of your uncle Sarada from a chronic malady. On the seventh day, I found an herb materialized in my hand. I made a brew from the leaves and gave it to your uncle. His disease vanished at once and has never reappeared. I entered the sacred Tarakeshwar shrine. The altar contains nothing but a round stone. Its circumference, beginningless and endless, makes it aptly significant of the infinite. In India, cosmic abstractions are understood even by the unlettered peasant. In fact, Westerners have sometimes accused him of living on abstractions. My own mood at the moment was so austere that I felt disinclined to bow before the stone symbol. God should be sought, I reflected, only within the soul. I left the temple without genuflection 
and walked briskly towards the outlying village of Ranbajpur. I was not sure of the way. My appeal to a passer-by for information caused him to sink into long cogitation. When you come to a crossroad, turn right and keep going, he finally pronounced oracularly. Obeying the directions, I wended my way alongside the banks of a canal. Darkness fell. The outskirts of the jungle village were alive with winking fireflies and the howls of nearby jackals. The moonlight was too faint to be helpful. I stumbled on for two hours. Welcome clang of a cowbell. My repeated shouts eventually brought a peasant to my side. I am looking for Ram Gopal Bapu. No such person lives in our village. The man's tone was surly. You're probably a lying detective. Hoping to allay suspicion and his politically troubled mind, I touchingly explained my predicament. He took me to his home and offered a hospitable welcome. Ranbajpur is far from here, he remarked. At the crossroad, you should have turned left, not right. My earlier informant, I thought sadly, was a definite menace to travellers. After a relishable meal of coarse rice, lentil dal, and curry of potatoes with raw bananas, I retired to a small hut adjoining the courtyard. In the distance, villagers were singing to the loud accompaniment of mridangas, hand-played drums, and cymbals. Sleep was inconsiderable that night. I prayed deeply to be directed to the secluded yogi, Ram Gopal. As the first streaks of dawn penetrated the fissures of my hut, I set out for Ranbanjpur. Crossing rough paddy fields, I trudged over sickled stumps of the prickly plant and around mounds of dried clay. An occasionally met peasant would inform me, invariably, that my destination was only a krosha, two miles. In six hours the sun travelled victoriously from horizon to meridian, but I began to feel that I would ever be distant from Ranbajpur by one krosha. At mid-afternoon my world was still an endless paddy field. Heat pouring from the inescapable sky was bringing me to near collapse. I saw a man approaching me at a leisurely pace. I hardly dared utter my usual question, lest it summon the monotonous just a krosha. The stranger halted beside me, short and slight, he was physically unimpressive save for an extraordinary pair of piercing dark eyes. I was planning to leave Ranbajpur, but your purpose was good, so I awaited you. He shook a finger in my astounded face. Aren't you clever to think that, unannounced, you could pounce on me? That Professor Bihari had no right to give you my address. Considering that introduction of myself would be mere verbosity in the presence of this master, I stood speechless, somewhat hurt at my reception. His next remark was abruptly put. Tell me, where do you think God is? Why, he is within me and everywhere. I doubtless looked as bewildered as I felt. All-pervading, eh? The saint chuckled. Then why, young sir, did you fail to bow before the infinite in the stone symbol at the Tarakeshwar temple yesterday. 
Your pride caused you the punishment of being misdirected by the passerby who was not bothered by fine distinctions between left and right. Today, too, you have had a fairly uncomfortable time of it. I agreed wholeheartedly, wonderstruck that an omnipresent eye hidden within the unremarkable body before me. Healing strength emanated from the yogi. I was instantly refreshed in the scorching field. The devotee inclines to think his path to God is the only way, he said. Yoga, through which divinity is found within, is doubtless the highest road, as Lahiri Mahasya has told us. But discovering the Lord within, we soon perceive him without. Holy shrines in Talakeshwar and elsewhere are rightly venerated as nuclear centers of spiritual power. The saint's censorious attitude vanished. His eyes became compassionately soft. He patted my shoulder. Young yogi, I see you are running away from your master. He has everything you need. You should return to him. He added, mountains cannot be your guru. The same thought that Sri Yukteswar had expressed two days earlier. Masters are under no cosmic compulsion to live on mountains only. My companion glanced at me quizzically. The Himalayas in India and Tibet have no monopoly on saints. What one does not trouble to find within will not be discovered by transporting the body hither and yon. As soon as the devotee is willing to go even to the ends of the earth for spiritual enlightenment, his guru appears nearby. I silently agreed, recalling my prayer in the Banaras Hermitage, followed by the meeting with Sri Yukteswar in a crowded lane. Are you able to have a little room where you can close the door and be alone? Yes. I reflected that this saint descended from the general to the particular with disconcerting speed. That is your cave. The yogi bestowed on me a gaze of illumination which I have never forgotten. That is your sacred mountain. That is where you will find the kingdom of God. His simple words instantaneously banished my lifelong obsession for the Himalayas. In a burning paddy field I awoke from the dream of mountains and eternal snows. Young sir, your divine thirst is laudable. I feel great love for you. Ram Gopal took my hand and led me to a quaint hamlet within a jungle clearing. The adobe houses were covered with coconut leaves and rustically adorned over their entrances with fresh tropical flowers. The saint seated me on the umbrageous bamboo platform of his small cottage. After he had given me sweetened lime juice and a piece of rock candy, we entered his patio and assumed the lotus posture. Four hours of meditation passed. I opened my eyes and saw that the moonlit figure of the yogi was still motionless. As I was sternly reminding my stomach that man does not live by bread alone, Ram Gopal rose from his seat. I see you are famished, he said. Food will be ready soon. He kindled a fire under a clay oven on the patio. In a short time we were eating rice and dal, served on large banana tree leaves. 
My host had courteously refused my aid in all cooking chores. The guest is God. A Hindu proverb has commanded devout observance in India since time immemorial. In my later world travels, I was charmed to see that a similar respect for visitors is manifested in the rural sections of many countries. The city dweller finds the keen edge of hospitality blunted by a superabundance of strange faces. The marts of men seemed almost unimaginably remote as I squatted by the yogi in the isolation of the tiny jungle village. The cottage room was mysteriously lit with a mellow glow. Ram Gopal arranged some torn blankets on the floor for my bed and seated himself on a straw mat. Overwhelmed by his spiritual magnetism, I ventured a request. Sir, why don't you grant me a samadhi? Dear one, I would be glad to convey the divine contact, but it is not my place to do so. The saint looked at me with half-closed eyes. Your master will bestow that experience on you shortly. Your body is not tuned just yet. As a small lamp bulb would be shattered by excessive electrical voltage, so your nerves are unready for the cosmic current. If I gave you the infinite ecstasy right now, you would burn as though every cell were on fire. You are asking illumination from me, the yogi continued musingly, while I am wondering, inconsiderable as I am, and with the little meditation I have done, if I have succeeded in pleasing God, and what worth I may find in his eyes at the final reckoning. Sir, have you not been single-heartedly seeking God for a long time? I have not done much. Bihari must have told you something of my life. For twenty years I occupied a secret grotto, meditating eighteen hours a day. Then I moved to a more inaccessible cave and stayed there for twenty-five years, remaining in yoga union for twenty hours daily. I did not need sleep, for I was ever with God. My body was more rested by the complete calmness of the superconsciousness than it could have been by the imperfect peace of the ordinary subconscious state. The muscles relax during sleep, but the heart, lungs, and circulatory system are constantly at work. They get no rest. In superconsciousness, all internal organs remain in a state of suspended animation, electrified by the cosmic energy. By such means I have found it unnecessary to sleep for years. He added, the time will come when you too will dispense with sleep. My goodness, you have meditated for so long and yet are unsure of the Lord's favour, I remarked with astonishment. Then what about us poor mortals? Well, don't you see, my dear boy, that God is eternity itself? To assume that one may fully know him by forty-five years of meditation is rather a preposterous expectation. Babaji assures us, however, that even a little meditation saves us from the dire fear of death and of after-death states. Do not fix your spiritual ideal on small mountains, but hitch it to the star of unqualified divine attainment. If you work hard, you will get there. Enthralled by the prospect, I asked him for further enlightening words. He related a wondrous story of his first meeting with Lahiri Mayashai's guru, Babaji. Around midnight, Ram Gopal fell into silence, 
and I lay down on my blankets. Closing my eyes, I saw flashes of lightning. The vast space within me was a chamber of molten light. I opened my eyes and observed the same dazzling radiance. The room became a part of the infinite vault that I was beholding with interior vision. The yogi said, Why don't you go to sleep? Sir, how can I sleep when lightning is blazing around me, whether my eyes are shut or open? You are blessed to be having this experience. The spiritual radiations are not easily seen. The saint added a few words of affection. At dawn, Ram Gopal gave me rock candies and said I must depart. I felt such reluctance to bid him farewell that tears coursed down my cheeks. I will not let you go empty-handed, the yogi spoke tenderly. I will do something for you. He smiled and looked at me steadfastly. I became immobile, as though rooted to the ground. Vibrations of peace that emanated from the saint flooded my being. I was instantaneously healed of a pain in my back that had been troubling me intermittently for years. Renewed, bathed in a sea of luminous joy, I wept no more. After touching Ram Gopal's feet, I entered the jungle. I made my way through its tropical tangle and over many paddy fields, until I reached Tarakeshwar. There I made a second pilgrimage to the famous shrine and prostrated myself fully before the altar. The round stone enlarged before my inner vision until it became the cosmical spheres, ring within ring, zone after zone, all dowered with divinity. I entrained happily an hour later for Calcutta. My travels ended not in the lofty mountains, but in the Himalayan presence of my master. Chapter 14 An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness I am here, Guruji. My shamefacedness spoke more eloquently for me. Let us go to the kitchen and find something to eat. Sri Yukteswar's manner was as casual as though hours and not days had separated us. Master, I must have disappointed you by my abrupt departure from my duties here. I thought you might be angry with me. No, of course not. Wrath springs only from thwarted desires. I do not expect anything from others, so their actions cannot be in opposition to wishes of mine. I would not use you for my own ends. I am happy only in your own true happiness. Sir, one hears of divine love in a vague way, but today I am indeed having a concrete example of it from your angelic self. In the world, even a father does not easily forgive his son if he leaves his parents' business without warning. But you show not the slightest vexation, though you must have been put to great inconvenience by the many unfinished tasks I left behind. We looked into each other's eyes, where tears were shining. A blissful wave engulfed me. I was conscious that the Lord, in the form of my guru, was expanding the limited ardours of my heart to vast reaches of cosmic love. A few mornings later, I made my way to Master's empty sitting-room. I planned to meditate, 
but my laudable purpose was unshared by disobedient thoughts. They scattered like birds before the hunter. Mukunda, Sri Yukteswar's voice sounded from a distant balcony. I felt as rebellious as my thoughts. Master always urges me to meditate, I muttered to myself. He should not disturb me when he knows why I came to his room. He summoned me again. I remained obstinately silent. The third time his tone held rebuke. Sir, I am meditating, I shouted protestingly. I know how you are meditating, my guru called out. With your mind distributed like leaves in a storm, come here to me. Thwarted and exposed, I made my way sadly to his side. Poor boy, mountains cannot give you what you want. Master spoke caressingly, comfortingly. His calm gaze was unfathomable. Your heart's desire shall be fulfilled. Sri Yukteswar seldom indulged in riddles. I was bewildered. He struck gently on my chest above the heart. My body became immovably rooted. Breath was drawn out of my lungs as if by some huge magnet. Soul and mind instantly lost their physical bondage and streamed out like a fluid, piercing light from my every pore. The flesh was as though dead, yet in my intense awareness I knew that never before had I been fully alive. My sense of identity was no longer narrowly confined to a body, but embraced the circumambient atoms. People on distant streets seemed to be moving gently over my own remote periphery. The roots of plants and trees appeared through a dim transparency of the soil. I discerned the inward flow of their sap. The whole vicinity lay bare before me. My ordinary frontal vision was now changed to a vast spherical sight, simultaneously all-perceptive. Through the back of my head I saw men strolling far down Raigat Lane, and noticed also a white cow that was leisurely approaching. When she reached the open ashram gate, I observed her as though with my two physical eyes. After she had passed behind the brick wall of the courtyard, I saw her clearly still. All objects within my panoramic gaze trembled and vibrated like quick motion pictures. My body, masters, the pillared courtyard, the furniture and floor, the trees and sunshine occasionally became violently agitated until all melted into a luminescent sea. Even as sugar crystals thrown into a glass of water dissolve after being shaken. The unifying light alternated with materializations of form, the metamorphoses revealing the law of cause and effect in creation. An oceanic joy broke upon calm, endless shores of my soul. The Spirit of God, I realized, is exhaustless bliss. His body is countless tissues of light. A swelling glory within me began to envelop towns, continents, the earth, solar and stellar systems, tenuous nebulae and floating universes. The entire cosmos, gently luminous, like a city seen afar at night, glimmered within the infinitude of my being.
the dazzling light beyond the sharply etched global outlines faded slightly at the farthest edges. There I saw a mellow radiance, ever undiminished. It was indescribably subtle. The planetary pictures were formed of a grosser light. The divine dispersion of rays poured from an eternal source, blazing into galaxies, transfigured with ineffable auras. Again and again I saw the creative beams condense into constellations, then resolve into sheets of transparent flame. By rhythmic reversion, sextillion worlds passed into diaphanous luster, then fire became firmament. I cognized the centre of the Empyrean as a point of intuitive perception in my heart. Irradiating splendour issued from my nucleus to every part of the universal structure. Blissful Amrita, nectar of immortality, pulsated through me with a quicksilver-like fluidity. The creative voice of God I heard resounding as Om, the vibration of the cosmic motor. Suddenly the breath returned to my lungs. With a disappointment almost unbearable, I realized that my infinite immensity was lost. Once more, I was limited to the humiliating cage of a body, not easily accommodative to the spirit. Like a prodigal child, I had run away from my macrocosmic home and had imprisoned myself in a narrow microcosm. My guru was standing motionless before me. I started to prostrate myself at his holy feet in gratitude for his having bestowed on me the experience in cosmic consciousness that I had long passionately sought. He held me upright and said quietly, You must not get over-drunk with ecstasy. Much work yet remains for you in the world. Come, let us sweep the balcony floor. Then we shall walk by the Ganges. I fetched a broom. Master, I knew, was teaching me the secret of balanced living. The soul must stretch over the cosmogonic abysses while the body performs its daily duties. When Sri Yukteswar and I set out later for a stroll, I was still entranced in unspeakable rapture. I saw our bodies as two astral pictures, moving over a road by the river whose essence was sheer light. It is the Spirit of God that actively sustains every form and force in the universe. Yet He is transcendental and aloof in the blissful, uncreated void beyond the worlds of vibratory phenomena. Master explained. Those who attain self-realization on earth live in a similar twofold existence. Conscientiously performing their work in the world, they are yet immersed in an inward beatitude. The Lord has created all men from the illimitable joy of His being. Though they are painfully cramped by the body, God nevertheless expects that men made in His image shall ultimately rise above all sense identifications and reunite with him. The cosmic vision left many permanent lessons. By daily stilling my thoughts, I could win release 
from the delusive conviction that my body was a mass of flesh and bones, traversing the hard soil of matter. The breath and restless mind I saw are like storms that lash the ocean of light into waves of material forms, earth, sky, human beings, animals, birds, trees. No perception of the infinite as one light can be had except by calming those storms. As often as I quieted the two natural tumults, I beheld the multitudinous waves of creation melt into one lucent sea, even as the waves of the ocean, when a tempest subsides, serenely dissolve into unity. A master bestows the divine experience of cosmic consciousness when his disciple, by meditation, has strengthened his mind to a degree where the vast vistas would not overwhelm him. Mere intellectual willingness or open-mindedness is not enough. Only adequate enlargement of consciousness by yoga practice and devotional bhakti can prepare one to absorb the liberating shock of omnipresence. The divine experience comes with a natural inevitability to the sincere devotee. His intense craving begins to pull at God with an irresistible force. The Lord, as the cosmic vision, is drawn by that magnetic ardour into the seeker's range of consciousness. I wrote in my later years the following poem, Samadhi, endeavouring to convey a glimpse of its glory. Vanished the veils of light and shade, lifted every vapour of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy, gone the dim sensory mirage. Love, hate, health, disease, life, death, perished these false shadows on the screen of duality. The storm of Maya stilled by magic wand of intuition deep. Present, past, future, no more for me, but ever-present, all-flowing I, I everywhere. Planets, stars, stardust, earth, volcanic bursts of doomsday cataclysms, creation's moulding furnace, glaciers of silent X-rays, burning electron floods, thoughts of all men, past, present, to come, every blade of grass, myself, mankind, each particle of universal dust, anger, greed, good, bad, salvation, lust, I swallowed, transmuted all into a vast ocean of blood of my own one being. Smouldering joy, oft puffed by meditation, blinding my tearful eyes, burst into immortal flames of bliss. Consumed my tears, my frame, my all. Thou art I, I am thou, knowing, knower, known, as one. Tranquilled, unbroken thrill, eternally living, ever new peace. Enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy, Samadhi bliss, 
not an unconscious state or mental chloroform without willful return, Samadhi but extends my conscious realm beyond limits of the mortal frame to farthest boundary of eternity where I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. Mobile murmurs of atoms are heard, the dark earth, mountains, veils, low, molten liquid, flowing seas change into vapours of nebulae. Om blows upon vapours, opening wondrously their veils. Oceans stand revealed, shining electrons, till, at the last sound of the cosmic drum, vanish the grosser lights into eternal rays of all-pervading bliss. From joy I came, for joy I live, in sacred joy I melt. Ocean of mind, I drink all creation's waves. Four veils of solid liquid vapour light lift aright. I, in everything, enter the great myself. Gone forever, fitful, flickering shadows of mortal memory. Spotless is my mental sky, below, ahead, and high above. Eternity and I, one united ray. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. Sri Yukteswar taught me how to summon the blessed experience at will, and also how to transmit it to others when their intuitive channels are developed. For months, after the first time, I entered the state of ecstatic union, comprehending daily why the Upanishads say that God is rasa, the most relishable. One morning, however, I took a problem to Master. I want to know... Sir, when shall I find God? You have found him. Oh, no, sir, I don't think so. My guru was smiling. I'm sure you aren't expecting a venerable personage adorning a throne in some antiseptic corner of the cosmos. I see, however, that you are imagining that possession of miraculous powers is proof that one has found God. No, one might gain the power to control the whole universe, yet find the Lord elusive still. Spiritual advancement is not to be measured by one's display of outward powers, but solely by the depth of his bliss in meditation. Ever new joy is God. He is inexhaustible. As you continue your meditations during the years, he will beguile you with an infinite ingenuity. Devotees like yourself who have found the way to God never dream of exchanging Him for any other happiness. He is seductive, beyond thought of competition. How quickly we weary of earthly pleasures. Desire for material things is endless. Man is never satisfied completely and pursues one goal after another. The something else he seeks is the Lord, who alone can grant lasting joy. Outward longings 
drive us from the Eden within. They offer false pleasures that only impersonate soul happiness. The lost paradise is quickly regained through divine meditation. As God is unanticipatory, ever newness, we never tire of him. Can we be surfeited with bliss, delightfully varied throughout eternity? I understand now, sir, while saints call the Lord unfathomable, even everlasting life could not suffice to appraise him. That is true, but he is also near and dear. After the mind has been cleared by Kriya Yoga of sensory obstacles, meditation furnishes a twofold proof of God. Ever new joy is evidence of his existence, convincing to our very atoms. Also in meditation one finds his instant guidance, his adequate response to every difficulty. I see, Guruji, you have solved my problem. I smiled gratefully. I do realize now that I have found God, for whenever the joy of meditation has returned subconsciously during my active hours, I have been subtly directed to adopt the right course in everything, even in minor details. Human life is beset with sorrow until we know how to tune in with the divine will, whose right course is often baffling to the egoistic intelligence, Master said. God alone gives unerring counsel. Who but he bears the burden of the cosmos? Chapter 15 The Cauliflower Robbery Master, a gift for you. These six huge cauliflowers were planted with my hands. I have watched over their growth with the tender care of a mother nursing her child. I presented the basket of vegetables with a ceremonial flourish. Thank you. Sri Yukteswar's smile was warm with appreciation. Please, keep them in your room. I shall need them tomorrow for a special dinner. I had just arrived in Puri to spend my college summer vacation with my guru at his seaside hermitage. Built by Master and his disciples, the cheerful little two-storied retreat fronts on the Bay of Bengal. I awoke early the following morning, refreshed by the salty sea breezes and the quiet charm of the ashram. My guru's melodious voice was calling. I took a look at my cherished cauliflowers and stowed them neatly under my bed. Come, let us go to the beach. Master led the way. Several young disciples and I followed in a scattered group. Our guru surveyed us in mild criticism. When our western brothers walk, they usually take pride in unison. Now, please, march in two rows. Keep rhythmic step with one another. Sri Yukteswar watched as we obeyed and began to sing. Boys go to and fro in a pretty little row. I could not but admire the ease with which Master was able to match the brisk pace of his young students. Halt! My guru's eyes sought mine. Did you remember to lock the back door of the hermitage? I think so, sir. Sri Yukteswar was silent for a few minutes, a half-suppressed smile on his lips. No, you forgot, he said finally. 
Divine contemplation must not be made an excuse for material carelessness. You have neglected your duty in safeguarding the ashram. You must be punished. I thought he was obscurely joking when he added, Your six cauliflowers will soon only be five. We turned around at Master's orders and marched back until we were close to the hermitage. Rest a while. Mukunda, look across the compound on our left. Observe the road beyond. A certain man will arrive there presently. He will be the means of your chastisement. I concealed my vexation at these incomprehensible remarks. A peasant soon appeared on the road. He was dancing grotesquely and flinging his arms about with meaningless gestures. Almost paralysed with curiosity, I glued my eyes on the hilarious spectacle. As the man reached a point in the road where he would vanish from our view, Sri Yukteswar said, Now he will return. The peasant at once changed his direction and made for the rear of the ashram. Crossing a sandy tract, he entered the building by the back door. I had left it unlocked, even as my guru had said. The man emerged shortly, holding one of my prized cauliflowers. He now strode along respectably, invested with the dignity of possession. The unfolding farce, in which my role appeared to be that of bewildered victim, was not so disconcerting that I failed in indignant pursuit of the thief. I was halfway to the road when Master called me back. He was shaking from head to foot with laughter. That poor, crazy man has been longing for a cauliflower, he explained between outbursts of mirth. I thought it would be a good idea if you got one of yours, so ill-guarded. I dashed to my room, where I found that the thief, evidently one with a vegetable fixation, had left untouched my gold rings, watch and money, all lying openly on the blanket. He had crawled instead under the bed, where the basket of cauliflowers, completely hidden from casual sight, had yielded the object of his single-hearted desire. I asked Sri Yukteswar that evening to explain the incident, which had, I thought, a few baffling features. My guru shook his head slowly. You will understand it some day. Science will soon discover a number of these hidden laws. When the wonders of radio burst some years later on an astounded world, I remembered Master's prediction. Age-old concepts of time and space were annihilated. No person's home so narrow that London or Calcutta could not enter. The dullest intelligence enlarged before indisputable proof of one aspect of man's omnipresence. The plot of the cauliflower comedy may be best understood by a radio analogy. My guru was a perfect human radio. Thoughts are no more than very subtle vibrations moving in the ether. Just as a correctly tuned radio picks up a desired musical number out of thousands of other programs from every direction, so Sri Yukteswar had been sensitively receptive to a certain pertinent thought, that of the half-witted man who was hankering for a cauliflower. Out of the countless thoughts of broadcasting human minds in the world, during the walk towards the beach, 
No sooner had Master become aware of the peasant's simple yearning than he was willing to gratify it. Sri Yukteswar's divine eye had discovered the man dancing down the road before he had become visible to the disciples. My forgetfulness about locking the ashram door had given Master a convenient excuse to deprive me of one of my valued vegetables. After thus functioning as a receiving instrument, Sri Yukteswar then operated through his powerful will as a broadcaster or sending instrument. In that role, he had successfully directed the peasant to reverse his steps and go to a certain room for a single cauliflower. Intuition is soul guidance, appearing naturally in man during those instants when his mind is calm. Nearly everyone has had the experience of an inexplicably correct hunch or has transferred his thoughts accurately to another person. The human mind, freed from the disturbances or static of restlessness, is empowered to perform all the functions of complicated radio mechanisms, sending as well as receiving thoughts and tuning out undesirable ones. As the power of a radio broadcasting station is regulated by the amount of electrical current it can utilize, so the effectiveness of a human radio depends on the degree of willpower possessed by each person. All thoughts vibrate eternally in the cosmos. By deep concentration, a master is able to detect the thoughts of any man, living or dead. Thoughts are universally and not individually rooted. A truth cannot be created, but only perceived. Any erroneous thought of man is a result of an imperfection, large or small, in his discernment. The goal of yoga science is to calm the mind, that without a distortion it may hear the infallible counsel of the inner voice. Radio and television have brought the instantaneous sound and sight of remote persons to the firesides of millions. The first faint scientific intimations that man is an all-pervading spirit. Though the ego in most barbaric ways conspires to enslave him, man is not a body confined to a point in space, but is essentially the omnipresent soul. Very strange, very wonderful, seemingly very improbable phenomena may yet appear which, when once established, will not astonish us more than we are now astonished at all that science has taught us during the last century. Charles Robert Richet, Nobel laureate in physiology, has declared, It is assumed that the phenomena which we now accept without surprise do not excite our astonishment because they are understood. But this is not the case. If they do not surprise us, it is not because they are understood, it is because they are familiar. For if that which is not understood ought to surprise us, we should be surprised at everything. The fall of a stone thrown into the air, the acorn which becomes an oak, mercury which expands when it is heated, iron attracted by a magnet... The science of today is a light matter. Those amazing truths that our descendants will discover are even now all around us, staring us in the eyes, so to speak, and yet we do not see them. But it is not enough to say that we do not see them. We do not wish to see them. For as soon as an unexpected and unfamiliar fact appears, we try to fit it into the framework of the commonplaces of accepted knowledge, 
and are indignant that anyone should dare to experiment further. A humorous occurrence took place a few days after I had been so implausibly robbed of a cauliflower. A certain kerosene lamp could not be found. Having so lately witnessed my guru's omniscient insight, I thought he would demonstrate that it was child's play to find the lamp. Master perceived my expectation. With exaggerated gravity, he questioned all ashram residents. A young disciple confessed that he had used the lamp to go to the well in the backyard. Sri Yukteswar gave the solemn counsel, Seek the lamp near the well. I rushed there. No lamp. Crestfallen, I returned to my guru. He was now laughing heartily, without compunction for my disillusionment. Too bad I couldn't direct you to the vanished lamp. I'm not a fortune-teller. With twinkling eyes, he added, I'm not even a satisfactory Sherlock Holmes. I realised that Master would never display his powers when challenged, or for a triviality. Delightful weeks sped by. Sri Yukteswar was planning a religious procession. He asked me to lead the disciples across the town and beach of Puri. The festive day, the summer solstice, dawned in intense heat. Guruji, how can I take the barefooted students over the fiery sands? I asked despairingly. I will tell you a secret, Master said. The Lord shall send an umbrella of clouds. You all shall walk in comfort. I happily organized the procession. Our group started from the ashram with a satsanga banner. Designed by Sri Yukteswar, it bore the symbol of the single eye, the telescopic gaze of intuition. No sooner had we left the hermitage than the sky became filled with clouds, as though by magic. To the accompaniment of astonished ejaculations from all observers, a light shower fell, cooling the city streets and the scorching seashore. The soothing drops descended during the two hours of the parade. The exact instant at which our group returned to the ashram, the clouds and rain disappeared. You see how God feels for us? Master replied, after I had expressed my gratitude. The Lord responds to all and works for all. Just as he sent rain at my plea, so he fulfills any sincere desire of the devotee. Seldom do men realize how often God heeds their prayers. He's not partial to a few, but listens to everyone who approaches him trustfully. His children should ever have implicit faith in the loving-kindness of their omnipresent Father. Sri Yukteswar sponsored four yearly festivals at the equinoxes and solstices when his students gathered from far and near. The winter solstice celebration was held in Serampur. The first one I attended left me with a permanent blessing. The festivities started in the morning with a barefoot procession along the streets. The voices of a hundred students rang out with sweet religious songs. A few musicians played the flute and coal cartel, drums and cymbals. Enthusiastic townspeople strewed the path with flowers, glad to be summoned from prosaic tasks by our resounding praise of the Lord's blessed name. The long tour ended in the courtyard of the hermitage. There we encircled our guru, while students on upper balconies 
showered us with marigold blossoms. Many guests went upstairs to receive a pudding of chana and oranges. I made my way to a group of brother disciples who were serving today as cooks. Food for such large gatherings had to be cooked outdoors in huge cauldrons. The improvised wood-burning brick stoves were smoky and tear-provoking, but we laughed merrily at our work. Religious festivals in India are never considered troublesome. Each devotee gladly does his part, supplying money or rice or vegetables or his personal services. Master was soon in our midst, supervising the details of the feast. Busy every moment, he kept pace with the most energetic young student. A Sankirtan, group chanting, accompanied by the harmonium and hand-beaten Indian drums, was in progress on the second floor. Sri Yukteswar listened appreciatively. His musical sense was acutely perfect. They're off-key. Master left the cooks and joined the musicians. The melody was heard again, this time correctly rendered. The Sama Veda contains the world's earliest writings on musical science. In India, music, painting and the drama are considered divine arts. Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva, the eternal trinity, were the first musicians. Shiva, in his aspect of Nataraja, the cosmic dancer, is scripturally represented as having worked out the infinite modes of rhythm in the processes of universal creation, preservation and destruction, while Brahma and Vishnu accentuated the time-beat. Brahma clanging the cymbals and Vishnu sounding the miridanga, or holy drum. Saraswati, goddess of wisdom, is symbolized as performing on the veena, mother of all stringed instruments. Krishna, an incarnation of Vishnu, is shown in Hindu art with a flute. On it he plays the enrapturing song that recalls to their true home the human souls wandering in Maya delusion. The foundation stones of Hindu music are ragas, or fixed melodic scales. The six basic ragas branch out into 126 derivative raginis, wives, and putras, sons. Each raga has a minimum of five notes, a leading note, vadi or king, a secondary note, samavadi or prime minister, helping notes, anuvadi, attendants, and a dissonant note, vivadi, the enemy. Each of the six basic ragas has a natural correspondence with a certain hour of the day, season of the year, and a presiding deity who bestows a particular potency. Thus, one, the Hindoli raga, is heard only at dawn in the spring, to evoke the mood of universal love. Two, Deepaka raga, is played during the evening in summer, to arouse compassion. Three, Mega Raga is a melody for midday in the rainy season to summon courage. Four, Bhairava Raga is played in the mornings of August, September, October to achieve tranquility. Five, Sri Raga is reserved for autumn twilights to attain pure love. Six, Malkunsa Raga is heard at midnights in winter for valour. The ancient rishis discovered these laws of sound alliance between nature and man. 
because nature is an objectification of om, the primal sound or vibratory word, man can obtain control over all natural manifestations through the use of certain mantras or chants. Historical documents tell of the remarkable powers possessed by Mian Tan Sen, 16th century court musician for Akbar the Great. Commanded by the emperor to sing a night raga while the sun was overhead, Tan Sen intoned a mantra that instantly caused the whole palace precincts to become enveloped in darkness. Indian music divides the octave into twenty-two srutis, or demi-semitones. These microtonal intervals permit fine shades of musical expression unattainable by the Western chromatic scale of twelve semitones. Each of the seven basic notes of the octave is associated in Hindu mythology with a colour and the natural cry of a bird or beast. Doe with green and the peacock, ray with red and the skylark, me with gold and the goat, far with yellowish-white and the heron, sol with black and the nightingale, la with yellow and the horse, si with a combination of all colours and the elephant. Indian music outlines seventy-two tatas or scales. A musician has creative scope for endless improvisation around the fixed traditional melody or raga. He concentrates on the sentiment or definitive mood of the structural theme and embroiders it to the limits of his own originality. The Hindu musician does not read set notes. At each playing, he clothes anew the bare skeleton of the raga, often confining himself to a single melodic sequence, stressing by repetition all its subtle, microtonal and rhythmic variations. Bach, among Western composers, understood the charm and power of repetitious sound slightly differentiated in a hundred complex ways. Sanskrit literature describes 120 talas, or time measures. The traditional founder of Hindu music, Bharata, is said to have isolated 32 kinds of tala in the song of a lark. The origin of tala, or rhythm, is rooted in human movements, the double time of walking, and the triple time of respiration in sleep, when inhalation is twice the length of exhalation. India has long recognised the human voice as the most perfect instrument of sound. Hindu music, therefore, largely confines itself to the voice range of three octaves. For the same reason, melody, relation of successive notes, is stressed rather than harmony, relation of simultaneous notes. Hindu music is a subjective, spiritual and individualistic art, aiming not at symphonic brilliance, but at personal harmony with the over-soul. All the celebrated songs of India have been composed by devotees of the divine. The Sanskrit word for musician is Bhagavatar, he who sings the praises of God. The Sankirtans, or musical gatherings, are an effective form of yoga or spiritual discipline necessitating intense concentration, absorption in the seed thought and sound. Because man himself is an expression of the creative word, sound exercises on him a potent and immediate effect. 
Great religious music of East and West bestows joy on man because it causes a temporary vibratory awakening of one of his occult spinal centers. In those blissful moments, a dim memory comes to him of his divine origin. The Sankirtan issuing from Sri Yukteswar's second-story sitting room on the day of the festival was inspiring to the cooks amid the steaming pots. My brother disciples and I joyously sang the refrains, beating time with our hands. By sunset, we had served our hundreds of visitors with kijuri, rice and lentils, vegetable curry and rice pudding. We laid cotton blankets over the courtyard. Soon, the assemblage was squatting under the starry vault, quietly attentive to the wisdom pouring from Sri Yukteswar's lips. His public speeches emphasized the value of Kriya Yoga and a life of self-respect, calmness, determination, simple diet and regular exercise. A group of very young disciples then chanted a few sacred hymns. The meeting concluded with fervent Sankirtan. From ten o'clock until midnight, ashram residents washed pots and pans and cleared the courtyard. My guru called me to his side. I am pleased over your cheerful labours today and during the past week of preparations. I want you with me. You may sleep in my bed tonight. This was a privilege I had never thought would fall to my lot. We sat a while in a state of intense divine tranquillity. About ten minutes after we had laid down to sleep, Master rose and began to dress. What is the matter, sir? The joy of sleeping beside my guru was suddenly tinged with unreality. I think that a few students who missed their proper train connections will be here soon. Let us have some food ready. Guruji, no one would come at one o'clock in the morning. Stay in bed, you have been working very hard, but I am going to cook. At Sri Yukteswar's resolute tone, I jumped up and followed him to the small daily used kitchen adjacent to the second floor in a balcony. Rice and dal were soon boiling. My guru smiled affectionately. Tonight you have conquered fatigue and fear of hard work. You shall never be bothered by them in the future. As he uttered these words of lifelong blessing, footsteps sounded in the courtyard. I ran downstairs and admitted a group of students. Dear brother, one man said, how reluctant we are to disturb Master at this hour. We made a mistake about train schedules, but felt we could not return home without a glimpse of our guru. He has been expecting you, and is even now preparing your food. Sri Yukteswar's welcoming voice rang out. I led the astonished visitors to the kitchen. Master turned to me with twinkling eyes. Now that you have finished comparing notes, no doubt you are satisfied that our guests really did miss their train. I followed him to his bedroom a half hour later, anticipating happily the honour of sleeping beside a godlike guru.